Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello, everyone. We're winding down the book of Mosiah, but there are still some really important things that are going to happen in these last two chapters. Chapter 28, what we are going to talk about today, is going to continue with the story of the sons of Mosiah, who will play a major role in the book of Alma. And chapter 29 will be the dissolution of the Nephite kingdom and the reorganization of that kingdom into a new form of government. Today, I'm going to carry on the theme of intergenerational conflict from our last episode. I studied conflict resolution as an undergrad at BYU-Hawaii, and one thing that I quickly came to understand is that conflict is not a bad thing. The scriptures tell us that contention is of the devil, but conflict, I would argue, is pretty fundamental to the plan of salvation. That's what the fall of Adam and Eve introduces into the human experience. That's what the education of mortality is dependent on. It's by conflict that we gain experience, knowledge, understanding, and that we come to see our need for reconciliation that Jesus Christ offers us through the work of the atonement. Obedience may very well be the first law of heaven in order to put us in conflict with God and create a condition of infinite dependency on the grace of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I'm not going to bury the lead on this chapter. To my mind, one of the things that enables the sons of Mosiah to take the revolutionary actions that they take in Mosiah 28 is their experience of being outside of the church. Like it or not, critics can often be great teachers. While perhaps not always arriving at the correct conclusions, critics can be quite effective at pointing out our flaws and blind spots. And when I put the post-angelic actions of the sons of Mosiah in the context of their pre-angelic intergenerational conflict with the church, I see them taking their understanding of the flaws and blind spots of the church and combining those insights with a transformative faith in Jesus Christ. And the result is miraculous. Let's get into the chapter and I'll try and make my case. Remember, Alma and the sons of Mosiah were just described by Mormon in the language of Isaiah 52, 7-10 because of their work in repairing the damage they had done, as well as teaching and building up the church. They are blessed, they publish peace, good tidings of good, and they declare to the people that the Lord reigneth. So in verses 1-9 through of chapter 28, Mormon says that after they had done this work, maybe for a few years, the sons of Mosiah come to their father the king with a plan. They want to go back to the land of Nephi. Now, if you weren't already familiar with this story, you might be thinking, wait a minute, isn't that how this whole mess of the book of Mosiah started with a group of Nephites wanting to go back to the land of Nephi and reclaim it? And I think Mormon wants us to draw that comparison because the sons of Mosiah aren't requesting permission to go and conquer the land of Nephi like the original expedition that ended up in in in-group fighting before it even got there, or even to negotiate possession of it, like Limhi in the second expedition. These guys want to do something that hasn't been done for generations. They want to preach the things which they had heard, that they might impart the word of God to their brethren, the Lamanites. 
In a similar way that Mosiah's people had the desire to gather in the lost tribe of the Nephites, the sons of Mosiah want to gather in the lost tribe of the Lehites. Now, they have some goals that they want to accomplish with this mission. They want to bring the Lamanites to the knowledge of their God, convince them of the iniquity of their fathers, thereby curing them of their hatred toward the Nephites, and they want to heal the conflict between the two people. That's a pretty big vision. These aren't just teenagers getting called on their missions. They're royal emissaries, the sons of a king, coming to bring the message of the king of kings, and they want to heal the family of Lehi. I suppose that even this mission, carried out in the wrong way, could be seen as an effort to conquer the Lamanites. Missionary efforts throughout history have often had an aspect of imperialism to them. Just think of how the spread of Christianity fueled Europe's colonization of much of the world and vice versa. But Mormon speaks to a different motivation here. He tells us that the sons of Mosiah and the others who were with them were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yet even the very thought that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. Mormon adds to this account later on in Alma 26, where he says that these missionaries were laughed to scorn by many of the Nephites. And this is what I mean by their insight into the blind spots and flaws of the Nephite church. For some reason, and I've argued that it may have something to do with the intergenerational conflict between the young unbelievers and the older believers, the sons of Mosiah were able to see possibilities where the older generation in the church couldn't. And listen, many in that older generation had reason to see the Lamanites as their enemies. Many had been enslaved by the Lamanites or lost loved ones in battles with the Lamanites. The Amulonites were now among the Lamanite elite, and we remember how they abandoned their families and then oppressed the church in the land of Helam. So I'm sure that those laughing at this plan to redeem the Lamanites felt quite justified in seeing it as naive. I'm not trying to bash the older generation of the Nephites here. If they hadn't gone through what they did, it's unlikely that the sons of Mosiah would be in a position to go and preach in the first place. My point here is that when we encounter intergenerational conflicts in the church, and many of us are experiencing this firsthand right now, the Lord can take that conflict and transform it in remarkable ways. And this isn't limited to intergenerational conflicts. The restoration is still happening which means there are things that need to get done which haven't yet been accomplished. And that means that we might have to do things differently in order to accomplish those things. I work with the youth professionally, and many of the complaints I hear about Gen Z, I see the Lord transforming those things into the strengths that the church will need going forward. So if you're a young person, involve the Lord in your plans. That's what the new youth program is all about. If you're part of an older generation, have a little humility when you interact with the youth. You have wisdom that they can benefit from, and they have insight that will push the kingdom of God further than we can imagine. I think there's a reason President Nelson has been very targeted in his messaging about gathering Israel. It's not that older generations don't need to be gathering Israel. 
But I think it may be the case that this younger generation doesn't have some of the hangups that have served as obstacles for gathering Israel in the past. Getting back to the text, Mormon makes clear that generational insight or not, the thing that truly fueled the sons of Mosiah's desire to preach the gospel to every creature was their own experience of receiving forgiveness and mercy from the Lord. Are we not all beggars? After many days of pleading from his sons, King Mosiah went to the Lord for guidance. The Lord's response was, Let them go up, for many shall believe on their words, and they shall have eternal life, and I will deliver thy sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. So Mosiah lets them go, and we'll pick back up with the sons of Mosiah in Alma 17. With this unusual missionary effort, the church is causing more disruption in Nephite society. Mosiah now has no sons available to inherit his throne. And remember, this is a bigger question than who will rule. It's also about who will keep the records, who will care for the sword of Laban, the Leahona, and the Jaredite interpreters. This is a bit of a crisis when you come to think about it. In verses 10 through 20, we get an introduction into how this crisis will be solved. But first, we learn that Mosiah has been doing some of his own inspired work. Remember way back in Mosiah 8 when Limhi asked Ammon if he could interpret languages and Ammon said that he couldn't, but he knew someone who could? Well, Mosiah was that guy and he's been busy. This is what Mormon says. And now he translated them, that is, the 24 Jaredite plates, by the means of those two stones which were fastened into the two rims of a bow. That is, the Jaredite interpreters probably found by the first Mosiah, what Joseph Smith will call the Urim and Thummim. Now these things were prepared from the beginning, and were handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. And they have been kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord, that he should discover to every creature who should possess the land the iniquities and the abominations of his people. And whosoever has these things is called a seer, after the manner of old times. Through this process of translation, Mosiah discovers that these plates contained the story of what will be called the Jaredite people, back until the time of the Tower of Babel, and from then even back until the creation. We get a shortened version of these records in the Book of Ether, which is Moroni's abridgment of Mosiah's translation. We also learn in the Book of Ether that there's a section of these plates that contains the brother of Jared's expansive vision of the world, portion of which Moroni sealed and included in the plates, but which Joseph did not translate. This is new scripture for the Nephites. In a generation, they've gotten a flood of new scripture, from the records of Limai's people, including the story of Abinadi, to the records of Alma's people. Now they have the Jaredite records. What a phenomenal time to be a Nephite. It also says something about Mosiah's continued role as a religious authority. Alma is the high priest, but Mosiah is still producing scripture in the same way that Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon. A few more things about these verses before we move on. When we were talking about how the Lord can use conflicts to produce transformative results, we were looking at it in terms of intergenerational conflicts among the Nephites, but we also see that same principle here with the Jaredite records. Mormon points out here that the Jaredite story really begins with the Tower of Babel when the Lord confounded the languages of the people in order to scatter them. 
So just like the Lehigh record, the Jaredite records begins with a scattering. But in addition to confounding and scattering the languages, the Lord also provides this tool for interpreting languages that somehow makes its way down through the generations into Mosiah's hands and allows him to gather in the story of this people with the rest of the Lehite records, even though it's written in a forgotten language. And that's a theme that we see in the Restoration. Scattering produces scripture, and the restoration of scriptures fuels gathering. Mormon actually ends this chapter in verse 19, but our modern chapter break is after verse 20. Verse 20 works both ways, as the conclusion of chapter 28, but also the introduction of chapter 29. You remember that the mission of the sons of Mosiah produced a crisis of leadership in the Nephite kingdom, as well as the preservation of the Nephite relics and records. In verse 20, we begin to see how that crisis will get worked out. Mosiah passes the records and relics on to Alma the Younger and charges him with preserving them and keeping the record of the people. There's a clue in Mosiah's decision as to what he will do with the kingdom going forward, but we'll have to get to that next time. I'll just wrap up by saying that my experience working with the youth has given me incredible hope for the future of the church. They have amazing capacities, and they also face very real challenges. They'll need parents, mentors, teachers, and leaders who are wise enough to let them take the lead in their own discipleship while offering support and guidance, even when it isn't exactly clear what the path forward is. There was a face-to-face -face broadcast this year with President and Sister Oaks about the new youth development program in the church. President Oaks was asked a question by a parent that basically amounted to, what do you do if you don't think your kids' goals are good enough? It was wordier than that, but that's more or less what he was asking. I was so impressed with President Oaks's response. He said that we should turn to the youth, trust the youth, in essence, get out of their way and let them work it out with the Lord. I think that's a wise approach, and I look forward to seeing how the Lord will work through these young people going forward to bring about miraculous transformations in the church and in the world at large. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.